Book Four, Part Two of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Four, Part Two, February fifth to March fourteenth, eighteen sixty-three. February fifth. Thursday night. A letter from Lavinia has come to me all the way from California. How happy it made me, though written so long ago, only the 30th of June. Lavinia has changed, changed. There is a sad, worn-out tone in every line. It sounds old, as though she had lived years and years ago, and was writing as though she were dead and buried long since. Lavinia, whose letters used to keep me in sunshine for weeks at a time. Well, no wonder she is sad. All these dreary years from home, with so faint a hope of ever again seeing it, and all these sorrows and troubles that have befallen us combined, are not calculated to make her happy. But I wish she had kept her cheerful heart. Well, perhaps it is easier for us to be cheerful and happy, knowing the full extent of our calamities, than it is for her, knowing so little and having just cause to fear so much. Courage! Better days are coming, and then I'll have many a funny tale to tell her of the days when the Yankees kept us on the qui vive or made us run for our lives. It will tell merrily, be almost as lively as those running days were. One of my chief regrets over my helplessness is that I will not be able to run in the next stampede. I used to enjoy it. Oh, the days gone by, the dreary days when, cut off from our own people and surrounded by Yankees, we used to catch up any crumb of news favorable to our side that was smuggled into town, and the Brunos and I would write each other little dispatches of consolation and send them by little Negroes. Those were dismal days. Yet how my spirits would rise when the long roll would beat and we would prepare for flight. Monday, February ninth, eighteen sixty-three, night. A letter from my dear little Jimmy. How glad I am! Words could not express. This is the first since he arrived in England, and now we know what has become of him at last. While awaiting the completion of the ironclad gunboat to which he has been appointed, like a trump he has put himself to school and studies hard, which is evident from the great improvement he already exhibits in his letter. My delight at hearing from Jimmy is overcast by the bad news Lily sends of mother's health. I have been unhappy about her for a long while. Her health has been wretched for three months, so bad that during all my long illness she has never been with me after the third day. I was never separated from mother for so long before, and I am homesick and heartsick about her. Only twenty miles apart, and she with a shocking bone felon in her hand and that dreadful cough, unable to come to me, whilst I am lying helpless here, as unable to get to her. I feel right desperate about it. This evening, Lily writes of her having chills and fevers and looking very, very badly. So Miriam started off instantly to see her. My poor mother, she will die if she stays in Clinton. I know she will. Wednesday, February eighteenth, Gibbs has gone back to his regiment. 
I can't say how dreary I felt when he came to tell me good-bye. I did not mean to cry, but how could I help it when he put his arms around me? Sunday, February 22, 1863. Mother has come to me. Oh, how glad I was to see her this morning! And the Georgia project, which I dared not speak of for fear it should be mere talk and nothing more, is a reality. Yes, we are actually going. I can hardly believe that such good fortune as getting out of that wretched Clinton really awaits us. Perhaps I shall not like Augusta, either. A stranger in a strange city is not usually enchanted with everything one beholds. But still, a change of scene, a new country, new people. It is worth while. Shall we really go? Will some page in this book actually record Augusta, Georgia? No, I dare not believe it. Yet the mere thought has given me strength within the last two weeks to attempt to walk. Learning to walk at my age, is it not amusing? But the smallest baby knows more about it than I did at first. Of course I knew one foot was to be put before the other, but the question was how it was to be done when they would not go. I have conquered that difficulty, however, and can now walk almost two yards, if someone holds me fast. Sunset. Will Pinckney has this instant left. Ever since dinner he has been vehemently opposing the Georgia move, insisting that it will cost me my life by rendering me a confirmed cripple. He says he could take care of me, but no one else can, so I must not be moved. I am afraid his arguments have about shaken mother's resolution. Pshaw! it will do me good. I must go. It will not do to remain here. Twenty-seven thousand Yankees are preparing to march on Port Hudson, and this place will certainly be either occupied by them or burned. To go to Clinton is to throw myself in their hands. So why not one grand move to Augusta? Monday, February 23rd. Here goes. News has been received that the Yankees are already packed, ready to march against us at any hour. If I was up and well, how my heart would swell with exultation. As it is, it throbs so with excitement that I can scarcely lie still. Hope amounts almost to presumption at Port Hudson. They are confident that our fifteen thousand can repulse twice the number. Great God, I say it with all reverence, if we could defeat them, if we could scatter, capture, annihilate them, my heart beats but one prayer, victory. I shall grow wild repeating it. In the meantime, though, Linwood is in danger. This dear place, my second home, its loved inhabitants, think of their being in such peril. Oh, I shall cry heartily if harm comes to them, but I must leave before. No use of leaving my bones for the Yankees to pick. Better sing Dixie in Georgia. Tomorrow, consequently, I go to that earthly paradise, Clinton, thence to be reshipped, so goes the present program, to Augusta in three days. And no time for adieu. Wonder who will be surprised, who vexed, and who will cry over the unforeseen separation. Not a single good-bye, nothing, except an old brass button that Mr. Halsey gave me as a souvenir in case he should be killed in the coming assault. It is too bad. Ah, destiny, destiny, where do you take us? 
During these two trying years, I have learned to feel myself a mere puppet in the hands of a something that takes me here today, tomorrow there, always unexpectedly and generally very unwillingly, but at last leads me somewhere or other, right side up with care, after a thousand troubles and distresses. The hand of destiny is on me now. Where will it lead me? Tuesday, February 24th. Meeting Miriam by mere accident on the road last evening, and hearing of our surprising journey to Georgia, Mr. Halsey came to spend a last evening with us and say good-bye. What a deluge of regrets, hopes, fears, etc., perfectly overwhelming! Why had I not told him of it the night before? All our friends would be so disappointed at not having an opportunity of saying good-bye. If the Yankees would only postpone their attack so he might accompany us. But no matter, he would come on in two months and meet us there. And would we not write to him? Thank you, Miriam may, but I shall hardly do so. We had such a pleasant evening together, talking over our trip, then we had a dozen songs on the guitar, gay, sad, and sentimental. Then he gave me a sprig of jessamine as a keepsake, and I ripped open my celebrated running bag to get a real, for true, silver five cents, a perfect curiosity in these days, which I gave him in exchange, and which he promised to wear on his watch-chain. He and Miriam amused themselves examining the contents of my sack and laughing at my treasures, the wretches. Then came good-bye. I think he was sorry to see us go. Well, he ought to miss us. Ah, these farewells! Today I bid adieu to Linwood. It may be for years, and it may be forever. This good-bye will cost me a sigh. Wednesday, February 25th. Here we are still, in spite of our expectations. Difficulty on difficulty arose, and an hour before the cars came, it was settled that Mother should go to Clinton and make the necessary arrangements, and leave us to follow in a day or two. Two days more. Miriam no more objected than I did, so Mother went alone. Poor Miriam went to bed soon after, very ill so ill that she lay groaning in bed at dusk, when a stir was heard in the hall below, and Colonel Steadman, Major Spratley, and Mr. Dupre were announced. Presto! Up she sprang, and flew about in the most frantic style, emptying the trunk on the floor to get her prettiest dress, and acting as though she had never heard of pains and groans. When we leave, how much I shall miss the fun of seeing her and Anna running over each other in their excitement of dressing for their favorites. Anna's first exclamation was, "'Ain't you glad she didn't go?' And certainly we were not sorry from mere compassion, for what would she have done with all three? If I laughed at their extra touches to their dresses, it did not prevent me from bestowing unusual attention on my own. And by way of bravado, when I was carried down, I insisted on Mrs. Badger lending me her arm to let me walk into the parlor, and prove to Colonel Steadman that, in spite of his prophecies, I was able to take a few steps at least. His last words, "'You won't go, will you? Think once more,' sent me upstairs wondering, thinking, undecided and unsatisfied, hardly knowing what to do or what to say.' 
Every time I tried to sleep, those calm, deep, honest gray eyes started up before my closed ones, and that earnest, you won't go, will you, think once more, rang in my ears like a solemn warning. Hopes of seeing Georgia grew rather faint that night. Is it lawful to risk my life? But is it not better to lose it while believing that I have still a chance of saving it by going than to await certain death calmly and unresisting in Clinton? I'd rather die struggling for this life, this beautiful, loved, blessed life that God has given me. March 10th, Tuesday I had so many nice things to say, which now, alas, are knocked forever from my head, when news came that the Yankees were advancing on us and were already within fifteen miles. The panic which followed reminded me forcibly of our running days in Baton Rouge. Each one rapidly threw into trunks all clothing worth saving, with silver and valuables, to send to the upper plantation. I sprang up, determined to leave instantly for Clinton so Mother would not be alarmed for our safety, but before I got halfway dressed, Helen Carter came in and insisted on my remaining, declaring that my sickness and inability to move would prove a protection to the house and save it from being burned over their heads. Put on that plea, though I have no faith in melting the bowels of compassion of a Yankee myself, I consented to remain, as Miriam urgently represented the dangers awaiting Clinton. So she tossed all we owned into our trunk to send to mother as hostage of our return, and it is now awaiting the cars. My earthly possessions are all reposing by me on the bed at this instant, consisting of my guitar, a change of clothes, running bag, kaba, and this book. For in spite of their entreaties I would not send it to Clinton, expecting those already there to meet with a fiery death, though I would like to preserve those of the most exciting year of my life. They tell me that this will be read aloud to me to torment me, but I am determined to burn it if there is any danger of that. Why, I would die without some means of expressing my feelings in the stirring hours so rapidly approaching. I shall keep it by me. Such bustle and confusion! Every one hurried, anxious, excited, whispering, packing trunks, sending them off. Wondering negroes looking on in amazement until ordered to mount the carts waiting at the door, which are to carry them too away. How disappointed the Yankees will be at finding only white girls instead of their dear sisters and brothers whom they love so tenderly. Sorry for their disappointment. They say they are advancing in overwhelming numbers. That is nothing so long as God helps us, and from our very souls we pray his blessing on us in this our hour of need. For myself I cannot yet fully believe they are coming. It would be a relief to have it over. I have taken the responsibility of Lydia's jewelry on my shoulders, and hope to be able to save it in the rush which will take place. Down at the cars Miriam met Frank Enders, going to Clinton in charge of a car full of Yankees, deserters who came into our lines. He thinks, just as I do, that our trunks are safer here than there. Now that they are all off, we all agree that it was the most foolish thing we could have done. These Yankees interfere with all our arrangements. I am almost ashamed to confess what an absurdly selfish thought occurred to me a while ago. 
I was lamenting to myself all the troubles that surround us, the dangers and difficulties that perplex us, thinking of the probable fate that might befall some of our brave friends and defenders in Port Hudson, when I thought, too, of the fun we would miss. Horrid, was it not? But worse than that, I was longing for something to read when I remembered Frank told me he had sent to Alexandria for Bulwer's strange story for me, and then I unconsciously said, How I wish it would get here before the Yankees! I am very anxious to read it, but confess I am ashamed of having thought of it at such a crisis. So I toss up the farthing Frank gave me for a keepsake the other day, and say I'll try in future to think less of my own comfort and pleasure. Poor Mr. Halsey! What a sad fate the pets he procures for me meet! He stopped here just now on his way somewhere, and sent me a curious bundle with a strange story by Miriam. It seems he got a little flying squirrel for me to play with, must know my partiality for pets, and last night, while attempting to tame him, the little creature bit his finger, whereupon he naturally let him fall on the ground, temper, which put a period to his existence. He had the nerve to skin him after the foul murder, and sent all that remains of him out to me to prove his original intention." the softest, longest, prettiest fur, and such a duck of a tail. Poor little animal couldn't have been larger than my fist. Wonder if its spirit will meet with that of the little bird which flew heavenward with all that pink ribbon and my letter from Mr. Halsey. Saturday, March 14th, 5 o'clock p.m. They are coming! The Yankees are coming at last! For four or five hours the sound of their cannon has assailed our ears. There, that one shook my bed. Oh, they are coming! God grant us the victory! They are now within four miles of us on the big road to Baton Rouge. On the road from town to Clinton we have been fighting since daylight at Redbridge and have been repulsed. Fifteen gunboats have passed Vicksburg, they say. It will be an awful fight. No matter, with God's help we'll conquer yet. Again, the report comes nearer. Oh, they are coming, coming to defeat, I pray God. Only we seven women remain in the house. The general left this morning to our unspeakable relief. They would hang him, we fear, if they should find him here. Mass Jean has gone to his company. We are left alone here to meet them. If they will burn the house, they will have to burn me in it, for I cannot walk, and I know they shall not carry me. I'm resigned. If I should burn, I have friends and brothers enough to avenge me. Create such a consternation. Better than being thrown from a buggy. Only I'd not survive to hear of it. Letter from Lily today has distressed me beyond measure. Starvation which threatened them seems actually at their door. With more money than they could use in ordinary times, they can find nothing to purchase, not a scrap of meat in the house for a week, no pork, no potatoes, fresh meat obtained once as a favor, and poultry and flour articles unheard of. Besides that, Tish crippled and Margaret very ill, while Liddy has run off to the Yankees. Heaven only knows what will become of them. The other day we were getting ready to go to them, Thursday, when the general disapproved of my running such a risk, saying he'd call it a d piece of nonsense if I asked what he thought. So we remained. 
They will certainly starve soon enough without our help, and yet I feel we should all be together still. That last superfluous word is the refrain of Gibbs's song that is ringing in my ears, and that I am chanting in a kind of ecstasy of excitement. Then let the cannon boom as it will, we'll be gay and happy still. And we will be happy in spite of Yankee guns. Only, my dear, this, that, and the other at Port Hudson, how I pray for your safety. God spare our brave soldiers and lead them to victory. I write, touch my guitar, talk, pick lint, and pray so rapidly that it is hard to say which is my occupation. I sent Frank some lint the other day, and a bundle of it for Mr. Halsey is by me. Hope neither will need it, but to my work again. Half past one o'clock a.m. It has come at last. What an awful sound! I thought I had heard a bombardment before, but Baton Rouge was child's play compared to this. At half-past eleven came the first gun, at least the first I heard, and I hardly think it could have commenced many moments before. Instantly I had my hand on Miriam, and at my first exclamation Mrs. Badger and Anna answered. All three sprang to their feet to dress, while all four of us prayed aloud. Such an incessant roar, and at every report the house shaking so, and we thinking of our dear soldiers, the dead and dying, and crying aloud for God's blessing on them, and defeat and overthrow to their enemies. That dreadful roar! I can't think fast enough. They are too quick to be counted. We have all been in Mrs. Carter's room, from the last window of which we can see the incessant flash of the guns, and the great shooting stars of flame, which must be the hot shot of the enemy. There is a burning house in the distance, the second one we have seen to-night, for Yankees can't prosper unless they are pillaging honest people. Already they have stripped all on their road of cattle, mules, and negroes. Gathered in a knot, within and without the window, we six women up here watched in the faint starlight the flashes from the guns, and silently wondered which of our friends were lying stiff and dead, and then, shuddering at the thought, betook ourselves to silent prayer. I think we know what it is to wrestle with God in prayer. We had but one thought. Yet for women we took it almost too coolly. No tears, no cries, no fear, though for the first five minutes everybody's teeth chattered violently. Mrs. Carter had her husband in Fenner's battery, the hottest place if they are attacked by the land force, and yet to my unspeakable relief she betrayed no more emotion than we who had only friends there. We know absolutely nothing. When does one ever know anything in the country? But we presume that this is an engagement between our batteries and the gunboats attempting to run the blockade. Firing has slackened considerably. All are to lie down already dressed, but being in my nightgown from necessity, I shall go to sleep, though we may expect at any instant to hear the tramp of Yankee cavalry in the yard. End of Book Four, Part Two